Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I am so good. I'm so glad to be back here with episode number 10 on season two. 210, second book, 10th chapter. 210. Yeah, we're there. We're totally there. You I'm know, effortlessly doing the math now. I know it's. It's like you've gone off and had lessons and returned, uh, and it's working. Whatever it is you're doing, it's working. Special remedial classes. Math is not my area. I, I'm, I'm lucky to be lucky to have survived high school. Yes, and here we are. So um, we've been talking the last few episodes about how to build a better magician, and today uh, we're going to talk to someone who did that from scratch. Noah Sony is joining us today, and what a treat to talk he to really Noah. Is. Yeah, he's terrific. We first met Noah at Sunday Night Magic, a show that we do here occasionally in Minneapolis. Uh, He started out as a volunteer. He went on to give some outstanding performances. And then he, in turn, started his own open mic night for magicians. Yeah, he... He's a fun guy, and there are no shortage of reasons to have Noah on the show. But one one thing you mentioned uh, that he created with a bunch of his magic friends, an open night mic for magicians, is right where we are in the bullet catch in Chapter 10. Eli uh, is taking his pal Jake to an open mic night called First Thursday uh, in order to give Jake a chance to learn what it feels like to actually stand up and perform magic in front of real people instead of in front of a mirror. <laughs> And Noah talks about that very thing in this interview. He's been performing magic in front of real people since high school, as you're going to hear. He graduated from approaching strangers at the Mall of America. Amazing. Just walking up to people at the mall and performing magic right there. Uh, He went on then to uh, get a gig at a Mall of America restaurant where he was um, doing a couple hours, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays. Uh, he's just a he's just a great kid and so sharp. Yeah, and he's uh, his journey really I think demonstrates for people the work that goes into building a career in magic. It might look easy, uh, it isn't. But what's interesting about Noah, among other things, is that unlike other magicians, magic didn't start for Noah with a gift of a magic set when he was a kid. You know, normally we don't do a, a big deep background on folks uh because you just kind of dive into their topic but you did you came to magic a little later than most didn't you i did i did i think i think a lot of people in magic have the story of like they started when they were six or they were seven and their grandpa got them a magic kid and then they like they were in it since they were kids and that was not the case for me um i know a lot of people end up finding magic later but for me it was around high school when I was just hanging out with my friends in the Mall of America and we ended up walking into a magic shop that had a sign that said free magic show. And we were like, all right, all right, let's let's see what this is about. And within probably 20 minutes, we were obsessed. Like it was the it was the thing. We all, it was all we talked about. It was we were like going back to the magic shop every single week. So, yeah, it started for me in high school. And what did you do with it? Do you, were you uh, doing shows at 15? So so this is the strange thing. Like it was. I, it's so weird because I think everybody has a different path in the world of magic. And for me and my friends, like, I think right away, we somehow just went, oh, like we can do this professionally. Like we can somehow, like we can make this work. So we like started a collective and we called ourselves Cadillac Blaine uh, because there was a restaurant in the Mall of America called Cadillac Ranch where a magician named Pat Umphrey worked. And then David Blaine, of course, was, uh, was the greatest magician at the time. So like that kind of combo together, we were just like, we'll call ourselves Cadillac Blaine. We'll be this collective. There was four of us. So we were like, we'll be this collective of four magicians. We'll all wear black dress shirts and we'll go do street magic. And that was like, that was like the intro into magic for us. Like we just assumed we could somehow get hired for events and it did not work like that. I think we did like maybe three shows in total and they just were like, I mean, we were really young kids who had just started magic. So they weren't like these incredible shows yet. And then over time, I found my footing a lot more when it came to learning how to do close-up magic at restaurants, learning how to do stage shows, learning how to work with agents, learning how to design a show more and more. Noah, did you uh, uh, go to college for any kind of performing arts or what? what's your background there? So I went to college initially as a theater student. Like I was like, I'm going to be a theater major. And then I had one meeting with my theater advisor and he was like, 
the very like first thing he said when he was like, what do you want to do? And like, I was very devoted at the time already. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a magician. I'm going to just make this work somehow. Uh, and he was like, well, we don't have any prestidigitation majors at our campus. And I was like, cool. You also don't have me as a student. And so I switched majors there uh, to undecided, which was just like, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever ends up fitting. Uh, and eventually I ended up in the parks and recreation field with an emphasis on event planning and management. And so I ended up getting a degree in that. And so that's sort of where my background is. But since the time I finished school, I went right into being a full-time magician. So I never really put the degree to good use, but I still have it. And I still learned a lot from understanding how events are coordinated and understanding it from that background. So what was your training like? So you, you picked up some tricks at the Mall of America. I remember that magic shop very well. How, how did you get better? The, the real key to, I think, the improvement came when I started working with Tyler Erickson. And I know that a lot of other people here in Minnesota have also worked with Tyler. But right now with magic, I think a lot of people get into magic and they really get caught in this trap right away of there's this marketplace that is behind magic. And there's all these companies that have things and trinkets that they can sell you that aren't actually practical. They don't work that well, but they look really shiny and they have a cool trailer and they come in a cool box and they have a cool name. And maybe there's a cool magician on the cover and you're like, oh, I, I need this to be a professional. And really early on, Tyler was like, no, you, you don't really need those things. Like you need these foundational elements, like these basics of sleight of hand. If you can really get those fundamentally down and the construction of a trick, these are the things that are really important. And so I think it kind of helped one with just a lot of guidance when it came to trying to figure out things that, that actually like were practical to do, things that could actually be done in the real world, things that actually had some sort of meaning to doing them. But then it also helped with that, just having general guidance when it came to having any questions about being a magician or how to be. I still, te I texted Tyler earlier today, asking him questions about trying to rewrite uh, website bios and stuff like that. So it's like, even now he's still this valuable resource and mentor. And it's, I think just having somebody that cares so much about the growth of magicians in the area and in general and the world of magic and the ideas and the secrets behind it. So that was the huge catalyst for me. Like that was the thing that I think changed the game was when I started working with Tyler. And then on top of that, just meeting other magicians that inspired me and that had work that made me go like, this is so cool and different. And it doesn't feel like what your traditional magician would do. You know, in this season of the podcast, we're looking at the second book in the Eli Marks series, The Bullet Catch. And in it, Eli is uh, teaching a friend who's an actor how to appear to be a magician on film. The guy comes to him having um, some chops. He'd worked with people in L.A. at the Magic Castle and, and has the beginnings of being a pretty good magician. Uh, and one of the things that Eli stresses is you're not going to really be any good until you get in front of people. And that's when you really learn is getting in front of people. What was your process for perfecting what you do by getting in front of people? Yeah, so... This has kind of a few different points that I'm going to jump around to, and I hope that it all comes together at, at the end. So the, the first thing for me was, again, just having that group of friends uh, in high school that also were interested in magic. And again, we were just starting out. We were learning things on YouTube, which is, I think, so many people's first uh, access point to magic. And we had a few things that these magicians had taught us around town, but like nothing too substantial. And we said, great, let's go out and let's be street magicians. And so we went to the Mall of America and we just went up to strangers and we were like, hey, we're magicians. Do you want to see a trick? And that was literally the, the fundamental aspect of that. And of course, for a long time after that, when I started doing it professionally in the sense of getting paid to do shows, that sort of fell off the radar for me for a while. But then I realized again how much value there is in that random encounter with a magician that idea of like you're just going about your day and then somebody walks up and they're able to show you something incredible i think it has even more value than it does at an event where you know that there's going to be a magician you know like that's what was so great about those original david blaine street magic specials is because his mentality was i'm going to be this modern day shaman i'm going to go up and i'm just going to do miracles for people and so i think just one taking that approach of that like street magic approach of I'm just going to go and I'm going to show people stuff and we're going to see how it goes. That was massive. That was huge to just being able to workshop material and understand. A photographer had said this, but he was like, whenever I go out and I do self-portraits and I have to set up this tripod and I have to take these pictures of myself and I get weird looks, I just keep telling myself, I'm never going to see these people again. 
And I think when I was first doing things close up and doing street magic, I kind of had to have that mentality of like, well, even if this goes wrong, the stakes are so low, I'm never going to see this person again. And chances are they're going to go in and they're going to be like, oh, that was cool. But they're not, it's not going to be like their main story that they tell at parties forever. Like I saw the street magician. He was so bad. You know what I mean? Like it's so low pressure. People don't operate like that. That was one. And then I also started right before I left to go to college and being a magician on a college campus gives you a ton of people that always want to see magic. So I had that great kind of, I worked at the front desk of my dorm. So I kind of had this point where I would just be there from, I think like 10 PM until 3 AM some nights. And so people would just come by and they'd be like, Oh, Noah, it's the magician. Can we see something? And I'd be able to practice material there too. And so finding environments that you're able to practice in is big finding that area where you can go around and just show people stuff with no pressure. And then another one, this goes back to Tyler Erickson, but he would always say like when he was, when we were doing like dedicated weekly classes, he would say perform magic every single day, at least once as if your life depended on it. Like if you didn't do a trick for one person today, you would die with that mentality. You know what I mean? And just like forcing yourself to do it every single day is the thing that's going to get you so much improvement. You know what I mean? Like always knowing, okay, today I have to find one person to show one thing to, it's going to help you so much. So those were, I think the three biggest things. It's very brave to go out and do that. (laughs) Did you, did you have any encounters with the security force at Mall of America saying, get out of here? What are you? No, that was the wild thing. I think like, I think it was also such a strange sight to see. Like, I mean, we were four high school kids all dressed in like black dress shirts, like buttoned up, like it was doing card tricks. I mean, like it must have looked kind of ridiculous in some extent, you know what I mean? But like almost like it's something out of a sitcom or a movie where you're just like, what is this? Where is this coming from? I think we had like a secondary tagline of like the four horsemen of magic or something like that, which by the way, now you see me took after we did. So I'm just saying, I think they owe us some creative liberty there. Like They absolutely do. Did you do any open mics, Noah? Not a ton when I was younger. I've done more now when I want to workshop new material and try things. But when I was younger, I went to school in uh, Mankato, so Minnesota State University of Mankato, which... Uh, the only open mic in the area was in Rochester or in St. Peter run by my friend, Michael Callahan, which you guys also know, Michael. So he had second story comedy. And so that was the experience that I had. It was less of an open mic, but he would let me open those shows. And so I'd be able to do five minutes of material there. And when it comes down to like places that I really got to cut my teeth being on stage, that was one of the first spots where I got to experience that comedy club vibe. I was trying to write like stand-up style jokes. It was great. It was, it was the closest, I think, open mic situation I had when I was younger. Before that, it was a lot of like things around campus. Poetry nights sometimes were things I would end up performing at. I would do a few coffee shop things, but it would never be more than like five or 10 people, you know? Well, I, I got to say the work in the front desk of the dorm, it's not exactly an open mic, but you know, what a great slot to have where you have people just filing by all the time. You can try new stuff and it's a, a pretty low key way to try out new stuff. Yes. Yes. And and that's what's so great too, is having that kind of captivated audience that is interested in magic and kind of having that casual way of being able to just say like, oh, do you want to see something really quick? You know, like it was great because every time I had something new that I wanted to try, I knew that at some point throughout being there, somebody would come up and just by having cards out on the table, I wouldn't have to be like, hey, do you want to see something? Sometimes they would just be like, oh, do you do magic? Or, oh, you do magic. Like they would be the ones asking to see something. So it kind of took away that barrier as well that I think a lot of early magicians feel where they're worried to they're worried to make the approach. That's always, I think, the thing that like is so difficult at first. I think even when I had first started, I remember telling a few other magicians like, oh yeah, like we just go around the Mall of America and we ask people if they want to see tricks. And they were like, really? Like, <laughs> like it seemed like kind of a shocking thing to, to like just approach strangers. But I think, again, growing up in the age of that like street magic special and like David Blaine, Chris Angel and stuff like that, like those were the first magicians that I really saw. And it just was kind of like, yeah, I, I guess we thought that was how magicians did it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yes. I also did uh, uh, restaurant magic there too for the first five years of my career was at Cadillac Ranch. So I ended up getting hired there as a magician eventually. And so every single weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was driving two hours from Mankato 
through the Mall of America to do two hours of strolling magic. And then I was driving back. But it was, again, that was one of the even better environments to do magic in because one, I was actually getting paid to be there, which at the time I was a college student and I was like, this is the greatest. Like, this is my job. You know? But then on top of that, again, it was never the same people because it would always be tourists visiting the Mall of America. So I always had fresh eyes to work on this close-up material again and again and again. So like the set that I had at that time, I would say arguably was really, really sharp because I was just doing it again and again and again. And that's that's like the real secret to magic that people will sometimes tell you, but it's always just repetition. It's always just doing the things again and again and again until you figure out what clicks into place. Well, and it sounds like you've taken all the right steps when it comes to particularly the most important thing, as uh, Eli tries to teach his friend in the bullet catches, getting up in front of people and just doing it. And your Mall of America experience is unique in that most uh, people starting out wouldn't do that. Your restaurant work is, I think, almost all the best magicians we've talked to at one time or another, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, did restaurant work. Yeah. It seems to be a really good launching space. But the thing that really I find interesting is while we were doing Sunday Night Magic, you and some friends went out and and started doing what essentially was an open mic night for magicians, which did not, as far as I know, exist in the Twin Cities. Uh, And I went to a couple of them and they were just fabulous. Thank you. What what was your inspiration for doing that? And how hard was it to pull it together? So... So I've always, I've always really enjoyed things that like feel sort of like underground. You know what I mean? Like when it comes to like, you see great contemporary art that just comes from things that were found on the street and stuff like that. And I think of magic in that way a lot in the sense that I've talked so much about street magic too. And just this sort of like taking regular things and making them feel extraordinary. And I think that what was beautiful about Sunday Night Magic in the Twin Cities is that you had this amazing theater and you had this great space and it felt very theatrical. And I think there was this sort of desire that we had as well to start something similar, but with a little bit more of this underground sort of like grungy feel to it, because there aren't a ton of magic venues that feel very, you know, like underground or like that feel sort of more like a comedy show. And so we were kind of like, well, what, what can we do to just create like this open mic area where people can just come in and we'll let them try anything on a stage. And we were like, right away, we were like, well, let's find a comedy club that'll let us do it. And let's like call it the Magic Underground if we're going for this underground vibe. And like, let's advertise about how like we don't wear suits and things like that. Like it's this sort of like different side of what magic could be. And I think that that was sort of that inception point, that idea of like, okay, how do we, how do we make it feel sort of different? How do we make it this really inclusive spot where people can just come in and try things? And maybe you're not going to see something that's great or something that's polished but you're still going to see somebody put their passion on a stage and try something. And I think what was cool is we had young kids like uh, Elijah was a, was a kid who had come up and he's from here in Minnesota and he, he came in and he was able to do it. And he still t- to this day was telling me at, at Magic Fest just a little while ago how that was such a great experience getting to be up on that stage and try things and just have an avenue to have a goal to say, I'm going to do a three minute set at the stage show. And I mean, at that age, it's really cool to have a venue that that lets you do that. So that was huge, just being able to give people one that access point, but then two create that different vibe of a show, you know? Right. And you also had, you know, the other end of the spectrum. Uh, one night I was there and Derek Hughes stopped by because he yes. wanted to take uh, the rough edges off something he was going to do on uh, Ellen DeGeneres the next week. Yeah. So you have that kind of really wide spectrum between Elijah, who's very good, but quite young, and then Derek, who's amazing and is just you know, looking for a place to um, try out some stuff. And that was one of those things that like, it, it's kind of like those, you never always know exactly what'll happen when you start something or when you do something. And so I think when me and Eli and Chris had sat down and we're talking about this, you know, like it was wild to just think that like Derek would, would hit us up and be like, Hey, can I, can I do some time on that stage? You know, like it just, yeah. we, we thought it was maybe, maybe like three or four magicians and then we were going to do our stuff and then see just how it goes. So I think that was one of those things that kind of like felt, I think, especially for where we were and who Derek is, we felt a lot of pride in that being like, oh, <laughs> you want to do a show on our stage? Of course, man. Like, of course, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. And that's, again, one of those things that really comes from having a lot of value as well, just from having somebody like Derek around, because he is such a great resource to the world of magic and to Minnesota as well. So, you know, what I 
What I love about your idea with the open mic, because as you explained, you know, when it comes to close-up magic, you're able to walk around the Mall of America and try stuff out. You had a nice gig at a restaurant where you could try stuff out. But when it comes to stage magic, uh, and you made that transition from being a close-up guy to a parlor stage guy who can do both or all three, there's just nowhere to try that out. I mean, you're either on the stage or not. So to create that kind of environment, did you guys find that really helpful? Incredibly. So helpful. I think I myself felt so much of an improvement having a low pressure place to just try out ideas because when you get into the rut of not, I shouldn't say the rut because it is in itself its own like form of blessing being able to like do corporate shows and, and repetitively do shows. But when you get into that cycle of this is my material, this is what I do, this is what I am doing, I'm going to go into this room, I'm going to do this, it's going to play like this, you can get very either comfortable or stagnant and it was great having a place that one because it was repetitive i we were always coming up with new material like it was always trying to think of something new and some of those new things ended up making it into the show but then two david copperfield talks about this in an interview that he did a long time ago but he says he calls it having a place to be bad and i'm sure that other people have their own names for it and their own ideas for this concept but just having somewhere that you can go And again, same thing with doing street magic at the Mall of America. And it's the same thing with that repetition. Consistently, those initial times that you're performing something new, nothing is perfect the first time you put it on stage. You're always smoothing out the edges. You're always tossing it back and forth like a snowball trying to get it right. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and that's what this really provided that, that first area where you can go and you can say like, if this doesn't even work, it's okay because it's an open mic and nobody's gonna care. I don't think we were even charging people to get into the show. So it's like, you're not losing money for it. You know what I mean? Like you can't be yeah. mad at that. So I think it, it, it provided not only a place to just try new stuff out, but just a safe place to try stuff out and to know, like if something doesn't go right, you can go back to the drawing board and it's okay. Are there uh, no, are there downsides uh, to uh, operating your own open mic for magicians? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think with any open mic, there gets to a point where sometimes there needs to be a level of, I don't want to say quality control, but I think sometimes, (laughs) sometimes there can be difficulties when it comes to trying to just get everything one organized Two, when it comes to doing anything with magic, you guys know this firsthand, but finding magicians can be a challenge in its own right too. (laughs) Uh, And finding capable magicians to at least perform or do something because you don't want a ton of people just doing card tricks again and again and again. So I think those were some of the challenges and then just finding a way to make sure that at least the show was somewhat enjoyable and interesting for people was a big one too. I suppose that's an issue is if, if everything's failing on stage, uh, the magicians may be learning that night, but it's uh, kind of a rough time for the audience. Yes. Yes. So we always had to make sure that somebody was doing like a seven or a 10 minute set, or we had a host in the middle that was doing their usual material and that would help it make it feel structured. But we also had to stress, like, this is an open mic. <laughs> you got any advice for uh, magicians, Noah, that might be uh, listening to this and thinking about starting out on their own, uh, you know, career path? You, you've had a, a really unique, I think, uh, at least from our discussions with magicians, a very unique flight plan to get where yeah. you are today. What about advice for people, performance options, anything? So one is having a mentor. I think right away, I talked about Tyler in this and having somebody that can just look at the stuff you're doing. And sometimes they have to be brutally honest and just say like, yeah, that's not good because it's the the old saying, the I can't see itself is so true. Sometimes like sometimes you'll work on something so long and you'll be like, this is going to be so great. This is going to be my magnum opus. This is going to be a work of art. And then one other person looks at it and goes like, why? You know what I mean? And then you kind of are like, huh, you're right. You know what I mean? Like it just, it just took that outside perspective at once. And so having a mentor to, to kind of have that eye on things and then to also provide guidance is so helpful Two, again, having a place to be bad is huge or just having a place to try stuff out. And so every time I talk to somebody who's getting into magic and they're like, well, how do I take the step to becoming professional? How do I, how do I take the next step in my career? it's always, my first suggestion is always restaurant magic. I'm always like, well, are you, have you contacted restaurants? Have you tried to get a restaurant gig? Because again, it's that repetition that's going to be so helpful for anyone trying to work. It's that one, you're getting some sort of, if you're able to get paid for it, you're getting some sort of base income from it. And for me, when I was in college, that was huge. Being able to just get paid 
to do magic. And then again, it gives you a little bit more of that freedom to say like, oh, I don't have to like look for another job that's going to take time away from this. So if you're trying to make it your full-time thing, getting a restaurant that can give you consistent pay is always going to be huge. But then even bigger than that, it gives you consistent audiences to perform for. And it always is going to give you one, you'll get so many lines from people that will just say things in the moment that you'll be like, oh, that is really funny. I should have thought of that. And so boom, you're, you're getting material from it. But then two, you're rounding out the sharp edges on those really difficult pieces. And so then when you're able to go into a, a situation and show somebody really strong close-up magic, you can book stage shows from it. You can get business cards on tables at restaurants and you can get clients from that. And so you can start building your business from that. And then when it comes to just learning material, find stuff that resonates with you and find ways to put your own spin on it. Because once you start conveying perspective in your match, when you start putting your personality into it, I think that's where it becomes like, there's a difference between a trick and a, there's a difference between a trick and magic, you know? And when you start putting yourself into it, that's when it becomes magic as opposed to just seeing a really good trick. And so figuring out ways to distill your story or, or elements of your personality into your material is going to be the thing that sets you apart so much from everyone else performing. Like if you really like Star Wars, talk about Star Wars in a trick. You know, I have a friend who really loves video games and he opens his show by talking about Mario. Like it's like do these things that you enjoy because that's where your passion is going to shine on stage. And it's like you're going to find people that really relate to the stuff that you talk about because boom it feels like they're seeing a part of themselves in your show too so yeah those are just a few a few tips <laughs> you know that's really good advice it's a great tip from him about uh, create the routines and the magic that interests you david parr told us that exact same thing and david's made his entire career out of the things that interest him turning them into magic tricks and that's uh, one of the many 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 smart things that that Noah uh, says and has done. He really has built his career very, very wisely. Like you said. That's, that's huge though, that idea right there. I, if, if more people understood that just in general as performers, that it, it has to be filtered you uh, to be m most successful for the audience and for you as a performer, that you are the filter yep. and you should use as much of you as you can bring to uh, your performance on stage as possible. And so for him to have that piece of information that early in his, uh, in his development is I think incredible. Yeah. That's how you build a better magician. The other thing I thought was great was his story about running the, the night desk at a dorm and having a constant flow of audience members, because neither one of us are magicians. You're a guy that does a few tricks. I'm a guy that does one trick. And even in doing one trick, it's hard for me to practice that because I simply don't have audiences. So it was so smart of him to, to look at that as a positive thing of I have a, a revolving door of people coming through, asking to see magic and things I can try out. So, so smart. And the other thing that mentioned uh, that is funny because we're going to be talking to him in a few episodes is uh, the name Tyler Erickson. It's surprising how often it comes up. I was just listening to a podcast today with our friend Nick Defat, and he uh, name checked Tyler a couple times. The influence that Tyler Erickson has had on magicians who are coming out of Minnesota and those who now use him as a, a teacher online is something that's going to be felt for years and years and years. Yeah, I agree. He's, he's terrific. I have worked with him uh, on a couple of things for a show that I do. I bring him in and say, here's what I need. And he goes away and comes back two days later and says, okay, here's how you do this. And here's how you practice it. And if you can, you know, specifically spoon bending, he, he was not a spoon bender. He just went out and learned how to do that and then came back and taught me so that I could do it. Uh, he's, he's terrific. And what a resource we have here in Minnesota, but now available to everybody through this, uh, through the magic of uh, what they call the interweb. Yeah. So look forward to that episode coming up a few episodes from now. We'll spend some time talking to Tyler. Getting back to Noah, who is the subject of uh, today's interview, he did stick around afterwards and talk about his experience on Penn & Teller's Fool Us. Which just right there, I mean, here's a guy who is fairly new to magic in terms of, I mean, he's a young guy. He's been performing for, you know, maybe 10 years doing magic and he's on and tellers fool us that tells you some uh, gives you some idea of uh, his talent level and his commitment to the art yeah particularly since they found him 
yeah. online and said, we'd like you to come on. Uh, and he, you know, uh, with uh, Chris Luke, they retrofitted a routine he'd been working on. We've got a, a link to it in the show notes. So in the show notes, you'll find a link to Noah talking about being on Penn and Teller Fool Us. And then we also uh, link to his actual performance on the show. And you see just what a, what a clever routine it is and how it tied in perfectly to his personality. Young guy talking about going to school and buying textbooks, which any of us who ever had to do that know is just the biggest scam in the world. It really is. And, and here's one other thing. If you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking to yourself, I, I'm a magician and I'd like to be on Penn and Teller's Fools. Uh, Noah's got some tips on how to make that happen for you uh, in that little bonus interview that we're, we've got in our show notes for you. Yep. So worth, worth listening and watching Noah on uh, Penn and Teller. Great stuff. And so anyway, we've heard Noah's story about setting up an open mic. So I think it's time for us to jump into this episode's chapter of The Bullet Catch. That's chapter 10. And yep. uh, maybe just uh, catch us up, would you? Sure. In chapter nine, we heard uh, a report from Jake as to what was going on in the movie set. For some reason, Harry sold Clive Albans, the British reporter, uh, a trick. And then uh, Eli went to see his uh, therapist, Dr. Baki, uh, and we got to learn the story of how uh, Harry met Eli's Aunt Alice, which is very sweet, which brings us right now into chapter 10. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 10. As I left my appointment with Dr. Baki, I checked messages on my phone and was surprised, pleasantly, I'll admit, to discover I had a phone message from Trish. Hi, Eli. It's Trish. Trish LaSalle. You know, formerly Trish Henry. You know, from high school. Oh, this isn't going well, is it? She sighed, sniffled, and then continued. Well, charging forward, I was just calling to say, I'm sure you've heard about Dylan... This was followed by a long pause, and for a moment, I thought the message had cut off. Then I heard a deep intake of breath, and Trish continued. Oh, dear, I'm such a mess. Anyway, Eli, I'm really a bit lost right now and was just wondering if you were free to talk. Coffee or something, I don't know. Maybe tonight? Anyway, I'm bad at this. Call me when you get this or something. Another long pause. Thanks. Bye. I listened to the message again and then dialed her number. Hello, this is Trish, she said in a surprisingly upbeat tone when the phone was answered. Hi, Trish, this is Eli, um, Eli Marks, returning your call. I stumbled only to be surprised to hear her talking right over me. So at the sound of the tone, oh, you know how this works, leave a message. Thanks. This was followed by a delighted laugh, which was then followed by a familiar beep. The contrast between the weepy woman who had left me a message and the upbeat, vivacious woman who had recorded the greeting was not lost on me. The message I ultimately left was not as emotional as the one she had left me, nor was it particularly one of my better efforts. I hemmed for a while, then hawed for a bit, finally combining the two into a barely coherent response. The gist of the message was, I was happy to hear from her, was sorry to hear about Dylan, and yes, I would love to get together and chat, but I was busy that evening. My rambling then took a sudden left turn as a thought occurred to me. Of course, now that I think of it, you may want to join us. Jake and I are going to an event, a performance, I guess you'd call it, and then to drinks afterward. You could stop by for one or both, whatever works for you. I continued jabbering in this fashion, surprised I hadn't been cut off by a message time limit. I remembered to give her the address and time for the show and then signed off in as upbeat a fashion as I could muster. So anyway, I hope you're doing okay, and if you want to stop by, it would be great to see you again. I took what was probably the first pause in my lengthy message and then delivered a stellar closing line. Um, that's all, I guess. Bye. I hit the end button on my phone with such angst and self-loathing, I would not have been surprised to find an actual indentation in the device when I pulled my hand away. Upon inspection, no such crevice was in evidence. I'm scared to death. Then don't go on. 
There's no requirement you go on. I mean, I'm shaking, actually trembling. Look at my hand. I dutifully looked at Jake's hand. In the dim light, I detected a faint, if noticeable, tremor. I haven't had stage fright like this since since being in the music man back in junior high, he continued in a hushed, stuttering whisper. I did Winthrop's first scene and entirely forgot to lisp. Everything I said came out in a British accent. I look like an idiot. I suppressed a smile, remembering that performance, where it appeared as if a cast member from The Importance of Being Earnest had wandered into River City, Iowa, to sing excitedly about the Wells Fargo wagon in a clipped, crisp British dialect. We were seated in the back row of the Parkway Theater, the movie house next door to our magic shop. I had spent a good deal of my youth sitting in the dark in this theater, consuming a healthy mix of classic films as well as more recent box office successes. Whatever raw movie trivia expertise I possessed could be traced to my time in this cavernous dark room. While it still did an active business as a traditional movie house, the Parkway had incorporated a live element into its repertoire, showcasing stand-up and sketch comedy on its stage on a semi-regular basis. When that had proved successful, the ownership then instituted the First Thursday series several years back, which embraced what some might call the vaudeville arts. On the first Thursday of every month, performers were invited to sign up for a time slot to hone or sharpen their variety skills. The stage saw a wide range of participants from burlesque to crooners to shadow puppets and, of course, magicians. In fact, for the last several months, Uncle Harry's pals in the Minneapolis Mystics had virtually taken over the first Thursday lineup, which offered them a great opportunity to dust off their acts for a new generation of appreciative audience members. Currently on stage were ventriloquist Gene Westlake and his acerbic puppet, Kenny. Dressed as an ersatz cowboy, Kenny was a surprisingly mean-spirited character, the exact opposite of his master, who couldn't have been a sweeter man. Gene had been grudgingly admitted to the Minneapolis Mystics 40 years before over the objections of some members who had bitterly complained, if we let the ventriloquists in, what's next? Jugglers? Over the years, Gene had always been a source of support and encouragement to me in my career while Kenny offered a seemingly endless tirade of insults that hit closer to home than I cared for. He was particularly hard on me when I was starting out, and some of his comments about my act still carried a bit of a sting. It was that classic conundrum of liking one member of a couple and merely tolerating the other half. Gene and Kenny finished up, as they always did, with a singing musical duet demonstrating Gene's amazing skill. He appeared to harmonize with the puppet, and he didn't use the tricks other lesser ventriloquists employed, such as resorting to playing a pre-recorded track. The secret, as he had explained to me years before, was he had mastered the art of Tuvan throat singing, traveling all the way to Siberia to take lessons from a Tuvan monk. That style of singing allowed one person to sing and sound like two people, which was perfect for Gene's act although he went further than many people might have gone to learn the skill. Gene and Kenny left the stage to a warm round of applause from the small but enthusiastic crowd, and the MC wasted no time introducing the next act, Card Maven, Max Monarch. Max's theme song, Shuffle Off to Buffalo, played while he made his way slowly onto the stage. His careful navigation of the wobbly steps suggested a man who, if not used to falling, was aware of the implications if he did. I should just go take my name off the sign-up list, Jake whispered. That is certainly an option, I suggested. Why is this making me so nervous, he hissed. I mean, I presented at the Emmys, for God's sake. Wasn't it at the daytime Emmys, though? The level of pressure is exactly the same. Before I could respond, Max launched into his act. Any indication Max might be beyond his prime vanished with his first series of card tricks, which involved summoning two audience members onto the stage and giving each a deck of cards to handle. Under Max's patient instruction, he produced some remarkable effects, culminating with selected cards appearing in each of the subject's various coat pockets. The demonstration, which maybe ran five minutes, 
So flummoxed Jake, he spent most of it quietly moaning and shaking his head as he sunk lower and lower into his seat. How is he doing that? He mumbled again and again. I know how these things are done. I've studied this. How is he doing it? He looked up at me, accusingly. You know, don't you? I hesitated, then nodded. He glared up at me. And you're not going to tell me, are you? I shook my head, giving him my best Mona Lisa smirk. Bastard, he grumbled. Well, there's no way I'm going to try to follow that. I'm taking my name off the list. He stood up to head over to the MC who was in charge of assigning performance slots from people who had signed up on the list. I watched him snake his way down the row, craning my neck around to see if Trish had shown up and taken a seat in the back. I didn't spot her in the small crowd. Jake made his way down the aisle to the MC's position just to the left of the stage. However, while making this short journey, Jake had clearly stopped listening to Max and was unaware he had just asked for a volunteer. Yes, you there, thank you. Let's give the young fellow a round of applause, Max boomed from the stage. Jake looked around, and his face registered what he'd gotten himself into. He turned left, then right, perhaps scoping out the exits, but it was clear he was trapped. He shuffled down the aisle, his head down, and took the steps to the stage like a condemned man climbing the scaffold. Max welcomed Jake to the stage, clearly not recognizing him as a semi-famous TV actor. He ushered him to one of the two chairs in the performance area and took the other seat, with just a small wooden table between them. He began to shuffle the cards and launched into the patter for one of his signature effects. Dead man's hand, he boomed, cascading the cards from one hand to the other. That's what they call the cards that lay on the table after Wild Bill Hickok had been shot in the back. Eights and aces. All black. The dead man's hand. He handed the cards to Jake. Give these a good shuffle, will you? Jake obliged while Max stood and addressed the audience, filling them in on the legend of the dead man's hand. I'd probably heard this routine a hundred times, but I never tired of his recitation as he outlined the final minutes of Wild Bill Hickok at the poker table at the number 10 saloon in Deadwood, South Dakota. How Bill always sat with his back to the wall, but on this fateful day, Charlie Rich refused to change places with him, twice forcing Bill to sit with his back to the door. How the cards were dealt, and how Bill was stone-cold dead before he was able to place his first bet. It was a great story, and Max really knew how to tell it. Everyone in the room was hanging on his every word, with the exception of Jake, who was shuffling and reshuffling the cards with a fierce intensity. Max sat and watched Jake for a moment, clearly amused at the level of determination Jake was putting into his task. Jake finally looked up, realizing the room had gone quiet. Would you say the cards are sufficiently shuffled? Max asked with wry understatement. Jake nodded and held the pack out to him. Max shook his head and gestured he should place them on the table. Mind if I cut the cards? He asked quietly. Jake looked from the cards to Max and back to the cards. He shook his head. Max lifted the top half of the deck, placed it next to the first pile, and then completed the cut. To keep this fair, he said to Jake and to the audience, why don't you go ahead and deal? A simple poker hand, four players, five cards each. Jake did as instructed, quickly dealing the cards and then setting the pack down on the table. In life, Max said as much to the audience as to Jake, we must play the hand that is dealt us. That's true today, just as it was the day Wild Bill Hickok was dealt his legendary hand. He had turned over four cards when the fateful shot was fired. Eights and aces, all black. He looked at Jake. Tonight, one of us will be Wild Bill, and one of us will suffer his fate with a gunshot wound to the back of his head. Even from my seat in the rear of the theater, I could see Jake gulp from Max's words. He sat up straighter in his chair. 
Let's see who will be our victim tonight. Max flipped over the cards in his hand. A full house, nines and kings, not a bad hand. He turned to the hand Jake had dealt to the right and flipped those cards over. Nothing much to pair. So far, I have the winning hand. He smiled at Jake, who glanced from his hand, still face down on the table, to the other unexposed hand. Max flipped those cards over. Not much to speak of, some hearts, maybe the beginning of an inside straight. This player would probably be wise to fold. He set those cards aside and took a long look at Jake. And now we come to you, my young friend. Would you be so kind as to turn your cards over, one at a time, and announce them as you do? Jake's hand hovered over the cards for a moment, and then he flipped the first one over. Eight of clubs, he said with a distinct crack in his voice. Eight of clubs, Max repeated. Jake turned over the next card. Eight of spades, he said, clearly trying to put some power back into his voice and falling short. Eight of spades, Max said in a loud stage whisper. Jake took a breath and turned over the next card. Ace of spades, he said in a flat voice. Ace of spades, Max repeated quietly. Jake touched one of the two remaining cards, then moved to the other, and then back to the first. He turned it over, a look of resignation appearing across his face. Ace of clubs, he said finally. Ace of clubs. Eights and aces, all black, the dead man's hand. Max took a dramatic pause and then continued. Poor wild Bill Hickok never did know what the next card was. For as he turned it over, he gestured to Jake to turn the card. Jake picked up the card. Just as he did, a gunshot rang out, and then someone screamed. I nearly wet myself with fear. What a coincidence. I nearly wet myself from laughing. You knew what was going to happen, didn't you? Jake glared at me. You knew that routine ended with a gunshot. Well, yes. However, to be fair, I didn't know that's the routine he was going to do when he dragged you on stage, I said, taking a sip of my beer. And in the interest of full disclosure, it wasn't really a gunshot. Just a cap gun he had wired to your chair. I must have jumped four feet. I couldn't help laughing. <laughs> At least. And you screamed. Like a girl. It was magnificent. Like the rest of the Minneapolis mystics and many members of the audience, we had retired to Adrian's bar for a post-show drink and bull session. At another table, Harry and the rest of the mystics were trading barbs with each other and receiving compliments from other patrons. At the moment, Uncle Harry was receiving lavish praise for his routine with the spool of thread, a variation on the classic gypsy thread routine he had made completely his own. The woman spewing the praise was tipsy and kept leaning into Harry in a fashion that he didn't seem to mind. The gypsy thread can be traced all the way back to Professor Hoffman, he was saying to the very drunk lady. I learned it from Al Baker, but I've made modifications to suit my performance style. You're cute, she said. Yes, well, that's a matter of public record, Harry replied with a smile. I have a vague idea of how he pulled off the dealing for the dead man's hand, Jake continued. But that first trick with the two guys and the cards in their pockets, how in the hell did he do that? Here's the thing you need to know about Max Monarch, I said. He's literally one of the greatest card men ever. Harry told me that years ago, he and the other guys in the Mystics used to pull the same prank on Max every two or three weeks, and every time, it blew up in their faces. What did they do? Jake asked with nervous curiosity. One of them would casually mention some card trick they had seen while out on the road, some real knuckle-buster that seemed completely impossible. They would describe the effect from the audience's point of view, confessing that they had no idea how it had been done, but that it was a killer effect. 
Max would nod along as they told the story without making a comment. He wouldn't say a word, just sit there and nod. And then, about two weeks later, he'd show up and perform the trick for them, flawlessly. Jake shrugged. What's the big deal? He reverse-engineered the trick. So what? I shook my head. You don't get it. The trick never existed. Every time. They made it up out of whole cloth. They would conspire together to make up the most impossible effects they could think of. Just mind-blowing stuff. Completely impossible. But they'd present it to Max like an existing effect, so he didn't know it was impossible. And then he'd go off and figure out how to do it. Every single time. Jake gave a low whistle and stole a glance across the room. Max was holding court with Gene Westlake and some audience member. I couldn't hear clearly, but it sounded like he was complaining about how much of his day he spent sitting at red lights. The others were nodding in sympathy. Soak his opening trick, Jake said, looking at me plaintively. Not even a hint? You want a hint? I could tell it was killing him to merely beg for a scrap of information. Yes, please. I thought about it for a long moment. Finally, I said, Two words. He leaned forward. I smiled at him. Deck switch. He switched the deck? I shook my head. Not one deck. Then what do you mean by deck switch? Jake, in that trick, he switches the deck four times. Four separate decks are in play throughout the trick. His jaw dropped comically in a broad cartoon-like manner. I had no idea. That's what makes it a trick. I drained the last of my beer. And here's a piece of advice Harry taught me. When you can't think of any possible way the trick could have been done, Jake was hanging on my every word. Yes? It probably involves a deck switch. I got up to get another drink, gesturing to Jake to see if he was ready for a refill. He shook his head, lost in thought. I heard him mumble, Deck switch. Son of a bitch, as I headed up to the bar. Hi, Eli. Sorry I missed the show. I looked up from my spot at the bar, surprised to see Trish standing next to me. Had I not been somewhat expecting to see her, I'm not sure I would have recognized her, at least not right away. She seemed much smaller than she had at the reunion, with no makeup and dark circles under her eyes. Oh, great, you made it, I said, just as the bartender handed me my beer. I looked at Trish. Um, can I get you something? She sighed and considered this for a moment. A glass of white wine, I guess, she finally said. I nodded at the bartender, who pulled up the nearest wine bottle, only to find it nearly empty. He held up his hand in a wait-a-sec gesture and headed down the bar. So, I said as we stood awkwardly at the bar, how are you doing? She shrugged. I'm not really sure, she said. Still sort of numb, I guess. Well, that makes sense. An awkward pause. We looked at each other and then looked away. The quiet, awkward moment got longer. Then finally we were saved by the return of the bartender bearing a full glass of white wine. I added more money to the stack I had put down for the beer and handed Trish her glass. We're over here. I said, pointing toward a booth in the back. We? she asked. Oh, just Jake. He was with me tonight at the show. He was supposed to go on, but got cold feet at the last second. We made our way through the crowd toward the back of the room, but Jake was crawling out of the booth just as we arrived. He held his cell phone to his ear. What does it say? He barked into the phone. Read it to me. He gave Trish a quick wave and then headed toward a quieter area of the bar. An intense look on his face and a hand over his ear as he strained to hear the voice on the other end of the phone. Trish looked to me for some sort of explanation, but I just shrugged. Actors, I said, as I gestured for her to take Jake's spot across from me. They never miss a chance for a little drama. She slid into the booth, took a sip of her wine, and set the glass down. So, she said, you heard about Dylan? Yes, I said. I was shocked, or surprised, whatever the right word is. My ex-wife's husband, um, a friend on the police force, 
Stopped by and told me about it the next morning. The morning after the reunion. After it happened. Trish nodded as if my ramblings were making actual sense. He just went out for a run, she said. Sometimes he liked to do that after we'd been out. There's a running path near our building. It runs along the train track. So he went out and I went to bed. And the next thing I know, the phone is ringing and it's the police. I had to go downtown, identify the body. Her voice broke off. I reached across the table and patted her hand, not quite sure why that was considered a reassuring gesture, but doing it nonetheless. She took a paper napkin from the dispenser and dabbed at her eyes. I got the sense she had been doing that a lot lately. That must have been difficult, I offered. Oh, Eli, you can't imagine. It was just so hard. She started crying for real now her head down and shoulders shaking. I was completely at a loss for what to do and was about to say something brilliant along the lines of, there, there, when a voice to my left suddenly cut in. Hi, Eli. I thought that was you over here. I looked up to see Megan standing by the table. She had come around the corner quickly and the expression on her face told me she hadn't noticed that I was sitting with someone particularly that I was sitting with a woman who was just this side of weeping uncontrollably. Oops, sorry to interrupt, she continued, starting to back away. Oh, that's okay, I said, quickly taking my hand from atop Trish's. We were just, I don't know, talking. Trish wiped her eyes again and composed herself, sitting up straight. I'm fine, she said to no one in particular. Megan stood there awkwardly, and I was feeling the same, not sure how to proceed. I thought maybe introductions might be the right way to go. Oh, this is Trish, Megan. Megan, Trish. My hands fluttered back and forth, gesturing to each person as I named them, looking like I was conducting an orchestra made up of fidgeting jackrabbits. The women nodded at each other, and I quickly tried to fill the short silence that, at that moment, felt enormous to me. I went to high school with Trish, I said by way of explanation. I turned to Trish. Megan owns the shop on the corner. Actually, the whole block. She owns the whole block, which, as it turns out, makes her my landlady. I almost added a short laugh and then stifled it at the last second. I'll let you guys get back to whatever. Megan said, continuing to back away. I was just here with some girlfriends celebrating, and I saw you over here, and I thought I'd stop by and say hi or something. Thanks, I stammered. Thanks for that. She started to turn away, but I kept talking, so she turned back. So what are you celebrating? She looked from me to Trish and back to me. My divorce, she said. My divorce became final today. Well, I said, good for you. Congratulations, good for you, I repeated for no apparent reason. Thanks. She turned away, then turned back. Nice to meet you, she said to Trish. She nodded at me, almost smashed into someone walking by who was loaded down with drinks, sidestepped them, and was gone. I watched her go, then turned back to Trish. She's getting divorced, I finally said. Yes, she mentioned that. She pulled another napkin out of the dispenser and dabbed at her eyes. I hate crying, she said. I nodded impotently. Then, when I stop crying, I feel guilty that I'm not crying. Basically, I'm a mess. I think that's understandable, I suggested. I suppose you're right. Anyway, how are you doing, she asked. Me? Um, fine, I guess, aren't I? I wasn't sure where her question had come from or where it was heading. After that elevator ride the other night, I don't know, you look pretty pale. I know uh, acrophobia can be pretty intense. My younger brother has claustrophobia. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. She seemed surprised to hear this. I did? Yes, while we were in the elevator, before the, the Christmas carols commenced. She smiled. Did that help? Yes, quite a bit. Thank you. I'm glad, she said softly. 
She dabbed at her eyes again and sighed. Oh, it's been such a horrible week, she said. The police have talked to me several times about Dylan and some of the people he associated with. So they think it might be more than a mugging? I asked, remembering how homicide detective Fred Hutton had danced around that idea. They're not sure, or they're not telling me, she said with a laugh, probably trying to protect me, as if I didn't know Dylan hung around with some bad people, some bad, bad people. She shuddered. I know, I said. I think I met one of them the other night. She looked up, confused. What do you mean? I was summoned to a house on Lake of the Isles under the pretext of doing some walk-around magic at a party, but there was no party. Just this really creepy old guy. Who was he? He called himself Mr. Lime, but I doubt that was his real name. What did he want? Did he know Dylan? He said he did. He wanted to know what the police had asked me about Dylan. And he said something about Dylan taking some money from him. She seemed to be taking this all in very slowly. Dylan owed him money? That wouldn't surprise me. Oh, I wish I knew what this was all about. She picked up her napkin and dabbed at her eyes again. She looked so sad and alone and helpless, and I felt completely powerless, not sure what to say or do. I considered suggesting I could use my contacts in the DA's office to see if the police knew more than what they were telling her. But at that moment, Jake returned to the booth, jamming his phone fiercely into his pocket. I slid over to make room for him, but he wasn't interested in sitting. His face was bright red, and a vein in his neck was pulsating. Jake, who was on the phone? What's the matter? I'm a dead man. That's what's the matter. What? I'm a dead man! He repeated, nearly shouting, A dead man! He turned and pointed a shaking finger across the room at Uncle Harry. And he's the man who killed me! For just a moment, the bar got very quiet, and then all hell broke loose. <laughs> That one kind of left us hanging, that yeah. uh, chap chapter 10. Uh, we'll find out next week uh, just why Jake is so mad at Harry and whether or not he's right to be mad at Harry. What could Harry possibly do to make somebody that mad at him? We're, we're going to find favorite. out. I uh, attended a number of open mics years ago when uh, uh, stand-up comedy was really getting started here in the Twin Cities with the likes of Louis Anderson and Jeff Cesario and those guys. Um, I wasn't doing stand-up. I just had a friend who was and would go to a lot of open mic nights. Have you ever done anything open mic? I, you know, I hosted uh, with uh, three of my buddies uh, something called uh, Haywire, which was part of uh, a theater company we all worked for and a woman uh, here in Minneapolis who produced a lot of shows that we were all in, uh, Sandy Hay. And she had uh, two spaces and one of them was the old Dudley Riggs ETC space yep. on Seven Corners in Minneapolis. And um, so after, I think it was Forever Plaid at that point, uh, was the stage show. And um, on Friday nights when that was over, we would, um, we would take that stage and do a show called Haywire. And it involved um, uh, open mic for people who were interested and came and signed up. We saw some great people, some people I'm still in contact with. Um, and then the four of us would do some, you know, improv stuff that we were familiar with. And we had a structure called cartoon where we would uh, each do cartoon voices until we couldn't think of any more. And uh, so yeah, I, I've never really gone to an open mic to perform, but I've hosted one for the better part of a year. It's a good way to learn your craft. If really you is. want, if you want to do that sort of thing, and I'm really thrilled that uh, Noah and the guys here in town uh, have started the Magic Underground, and I hope they keep that going because it's it's uh, as someone who's not a magician and you who is a guy who knows a few tricks, it's hard to find an audience, and to create that as an ongoing thing for magicians is a, a real smart move. So, thanks to Noah for that. So, uh, in keeping with our continuing theme of building a better magician, next episode we're going to have the one, the only, the hysterical. Harrison Greenbaum, hysterical in a sense of funny, though, not not like filled with hysteria. No. This is an interview that I chortled, giggled, 
laughed and guffawed my way through. He's just so energetic and funny. He he is a hysterical in the sense of in the sense of having uh, um, some umbrage or anger at magicians who aren't trying hard enough. So in addition to being uh, himself a great a magician and a, a terrific stand-up uh, comedian, I first discovered uh, Harrison uh, via a blog post he had done, which I think became a presentation and will at some point, if not already, uh, depending when you're listening to this, uh, be a book called You're All Terrible. And that's his premise. Um, hey, magicians, you are all terrible. It seems it seems perfect then for our how to build a better magician theme to have somebody on that thinks all magicians are terrible. And he really doesn't, but he does point out what magicians are doing wrong. In fact, uh, if you only listen to the first five minutes of uh, his interview, he points out immediately something that uh, Eli Marks uh, does wrong in the short story, The Invisible Assistant. Uh, he, he read it back to us. <laughs> It's a funny moment because to have somebody tell you that the magician you've created is an idiot. But he also, he, he's not just yelling at people. He's talking about how to fix it. And yeah. uh, and that's what's important is he, is he isn't just saying, here's a problem. He's also saying, here's the solution. And the, the, the problem is the solution is not, it's not easy and requires work. And his premise is that magicians want things that are easy and that don't require work. Don't we all, though? That's not, that's not just magicians. That's all of us for the... That's human nature at its best. Yeah. So tune in uh, for the next episode uh, as we continue the theme of how to be, uh, how to build a better magician with the, with the wonderful Harrison Greenbaum. Absolutely. But for now, uh, check out those bonus videos on the behind the page YouTube channel. Yeah. Particularly the, uh, the latest one with uh, uh, Noah Sony uh, talking about a pen and teller fool us. We've also got one up there uh, from my close recently. There are a ton of, of videos up there. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, and while you're surfing around online, click the link in the show notes to rate and review this podcast. They tell me that really helps. I don't look at the things too closely, but if someone says you should try that, hey, go ahead and try that. It, it might get us in front of some other people who otherwise wouldn't know about us. Yeah. And uh, for the love of Pete, you ought to subscribe to this bad boy. I know I did. Just recently, too, as a matter of fact. But yes. I'm, I'm a subscriber, and so should you be. Yes. Thank you, Jim, for subscribing. You're I, welcome. Are you subscribed, John? I do. I do. And I check it with, uh, only once have I checked and gone, oh my goodness, the, the sound didn't post. And I was able to quickly repost it. Uh, but for about six hours there, because it posts at 1am my time, uh, I'm sure that our friend in Switzerland uh, listened to it and what's going on here? There's no sound. But I did fix it. There's just a lot of steps involved. In, and I, there's a lot of ways I can go wrong. And I've done just about all of them when it comes to posting podcasts. Anyway, that's it for this episode, episode 210. We'll see you next time with Harrison Greenbaum. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.